This week, I'll be reading an interesting pair of opinions that were recently requested by Cam, a regular What's Scotus Rotus listener. So today I'll be reading the 1979 opinion of the court in Nevada v. Hall, in which respondents, residents of California, sued the state of Nevada for injuries that they sustained on a California highway when a Nevada-owned vehicle on official business collided with a vehicle occupied by the California respondents, unfortunately killing the Nevada driver. The question before the court in this case was whether a state is constitutionally immune from suit in the courts of another state. And in a 6-3 decision, the court said no, they aren't, permitting sovereign states to be hailed into another state's courts without the first state's consent. Forty years later, in 2019, in a 5-4 decision split along ideological lines, the court overturned Nevada v. Hall in a case I'll be reading next episode, Franchise Tax Board of California v. Hyatt, which held that states are indeed immune from suit in the courts of other states. But first, I give you the 1979 opinion of the court in Nevada v. Hall. Mr. Justice Stevens delivered the opinion of the court. In this tort action arising out of an automobile collision in California, a California court has entered a judgment against the state of Nevada that Nevada's own courts could not have entered. We granted certiorari to decide whether federal law prohibits the California courts from entering such a judgment or, indeed, from asserting any jurisdiction over another sovereign state. The respondents are California residents. They have suffered severe injuries in an automobile collision on a California highway on May 13, 1968. The driver of the other vehicle, an employee of the University of Nevada, was killed in the collision. It is conceded that he was driving a car owned by the state, that he was engaged in official business, and that the university is an instrumentality of the state itself. Respondents filed this suit for damages in the Superior Court for the City of San Francisco, naming the administrator of the driver's estate, the university, and the state of Nevada as defendants. Process was served on the state and the university, pursuant to the provisions of the California Vehicle Code authorizing service of process on non-resident motorists. The trial court granted a motion to quash service on the state, but its order was reversed on appeal. The California Supreme Court held, as a matter of California law, that the state of Nevada was amenable to suit in California courts, and remanded the case for trial. We denied certiorari. On remand, Nevada filed a pretrial motion to limit the amount of damages that might be recovered. A Nevada statute places a limit of $25,000 
on any award in a tort action against the state pursuant to its statutory waiver of sovereign immunity. Nevada argued that the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution required the California courts to enforce that statute. Nevada's motion was denied, and the case went to trial. The jury concluded that the Nevada driver was negligent and awarded damages of $1,150,000. The Superior Court entered judgment on the verdict, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. After the California Supreme Court denied review, the state of Nevada and its university successfully sought a writ of certiorari. Despite its importance, the question whether a state may claim immunity from suit in the courts of another state has never been addressed by this court. The question is not expressly answered by any provision of the Constitution. Nevada argues that it is implicitly answered by reference to the common understanding that no sovereign is amenable to suit without its consent, an understanding prevalent when the Constitution was framed and repeatedly reflected in this Court's opinions. In order to determine whether that understanding is embodied in the Constitution, as Nevada claims, it is necessary to consider, one, the source and scope of the traditional doctrine of sovereign immunity, two, the impact of the doctrine on the framing of the Constitution, three, the full faith and credit clause, and four, other aspects of the Constitution that qualify the sovereignty of the several states. Part 1 The doctrine of sovereign immunity is an amalgam of two quite different concepts one applicable to suits in the sovereign's own courts, and the other to suits in the courts of another sovereign. The immunity of a truly independent sovereign from suit in its own courts has been enjoyed as a matter of absolute right for centuries. Only the sovereign's own consent could qualify the absolute character of that immunity. The doctrine, as it developed at common law, had its origins in the feudal system. Describing those origins, Pollock and Maitland noted that no lord could be sued by a vassal in his own court, but each petty lord was subject to suit in the courts of a higher lord. Since the king was at the apex of the feudal pyramid, there was no higher court in which he could be sued. The king's immunity rested primarily on the structure of the feudal system and secondarily on a fiction that the king could do no wrong. We must, of course, reject the fiction. It was rejected by the colonists when they declared their independence from the crown, and the record in this case discloses an actual wrong committed by Nevada. But the notion that immunity from suit is an attribute of sovereignty is reflected in our cases. Mr. Chief Justice Jay described sovereignty as the right to govern. That kind of right would necessarily encompass the right to determine 
what suits may be brought in the sovereign's own courts. Thus, Mr. Justice Holmes explained sovereign immunity as based on the logical and practical ground that there can be no legal right as against the authority that makes the law on which the right depends. This explanation adequately supports the conclusion that no sovereign may be sued in its own courts without its consent, but it affords no support for a claim of immunity in another sovereign's courts. Such a claim necessarily implicates the power and authority of a second sovereign. Its source must be found either in an agreement, express or implied, between the two sovereigns, or in the voluntary decision of the second to respect the dignity of the first as a matter of comedy. This point was plainly stated by Mr. Chief Justice Marshall in the Schooner Exchange v. McFadden, which held that an American court could not assert jurisdiction over a vessel in which Napoleon, the reigning emperor of France, claimed a sovereign right. In that case, the Chief Justice observed, The jurisdiction of courts is a branch of that which is possessed by the nation as an independent sovereign power. The jurisdiction of the nation within its own territory is necessarily exclusive and absolute. It is susceptible of no limitation not imposed by itself. Any restriction upon it deriving validity from an external source would imply a diminution of its sovereignty to the extent of the restriction and an investment of that sovereignty to the same extent in that power which could impose such restriction. All exceptions, therefore, to the full and complete power of a nation within its own territories must be traced up to the consent of the nation itself. They can flow from no other legitimate source. After noting that the source of any immunity for the French vessel must be found in American law, the Chief Justice interpreted that law as recognizing the common usage among nations in which every sovereign was understood to have waived its exclusive territorial jurisdiction over visiting sovereigns or their representatives in certain classes of cases. The opinion in the Schooner Exchange makes clear that if California and Nevada were independent and completely sovereign nations, Nevada's claim of immunity from suit in California's courts would be answered by reference to the law of California. It is fair to infer that if the immunity defense Nevada asserts today had been raised in 1812 when the Schooner Exchange was decided, or earlier when the Constitution was being framed, the defense would have been sustained by the California courts. By rejecting the defense in this very case, however, the California courts have told us that whatever California law may have been in the past, it no longer extends immunity to Nevada as a matter of comity. 
Nevada, quite rightly, does not ask us to review the California court's interpretation of California law. Rather, it argues that California is not free as a sovereign to apply its own law, but is bound instead by a federal rule of law implicit in the Constitution that requires all of the states to adhere to the sovereign immunity doctrine as it prevailed when the Constitution was adopted. Unless such a federal rule exists, we, of course, have no power to disturb the judgment of the California courts. Part 2 Unquestionably, the doctrine of sovereign immunity was a matter of importance in the early days of independence. Many of the states were heavily indebted as a result of the Revolutionary War. They were vitally interested in the question whether the creation of a new federal sovereign with courts of its own would automatically subject them, like lower English lords, to suits in the courts of the higher sovereign. But the question whether one state might be subject to suit in the courts of another state was apparently not a matter of concern when the new constitution was being drafted and ratified. Regardless of whether the framers were correct in assuming, as presumably they did, that prevailing notions of comedy would provide adequate protection against the unlikely prospect of an attempt by the courts of one state to assert jurisdiction over another. The need for constitutional protection against that contingency was not discussed. The debate about the suability of the states focused on the scope of the judicial power of the United States authorized by Article Three. In The Federalist, Hamilton took the position that this authorization did not extend to suits brought by an individual against a non-consenting state. The contrary position was also advocated, and actually prevailed in this court's decision in Chisholm v. Georgia. The Chisholm decision led to the prompt adoption of the 11th Amendment. That amendment places explicit limits on the powers of federal courts to entertain suits against a state. The language used by the court in cases construing these limits, like the language used during the debates on ratification of the Constitution, emphasized the widespread acceptance of the view that a sovereign state is never amenable to suit without its consent. But all of these cases, and all of the relevant debate concerning questions of federal court jurisdiction and the extent to which the states, by ratifying the Constitution and creating federal courts, had authorized suits against themselves in those courts. These decisions do not answer the question whether the Constitution plays any limit on the exercise of one state's power to authorize its courts to assert jurisdiction over another state. Nor does anything in Article Three authorizing the judicial power of the United States or in the 11th Amendment limitation on that power provide any basis, explicit or implicit, 
for this court to impose limits on the powers of California exercised in this case. A mandate for federal court enforcement of interstate comity must find its basis elsewhere in the Constitution. Part 3 Nevada claims that the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution requires California to respect the limitations on Nevada's statutory waiver of its immunity from suit. That waiver only gives Nevada's consent to suits in its own courts. Moreover, even if the waiver is treated as a consent to be sued in California, California must honor the condition attached to that consent and limit respondents' recovery to $25,000, the maximum allowable in an action in Nevada's courts. The full faith and credit clause does require each state to give effect to official acts of other states. A judgment entered in one state must be respected in another, provided that the first state had jurisdiction over the parties and the subject matter. Moreover, in certain limited situations, the courts of one state must apply the statutory law of another state. Thus, in Bradford Electric Company v. Clapper, the court held that a federal court sitting in New Hampshire was required by the Constitution to apply Vermont law in an action between a Vermont employee and a Vermont employer arising out of a contract made in Vermont. But this court's decision in Pacific Insurance Company, the Industrial Accident, clearly establishes that the full faith and credit clause does not require a state to apply another state's law in violation of its own legitimate public policy. The question in Pacific Insurance was whether the full faith and credit clause precluded California from applying its own Workmen's Compensation Act in the case of an injury suffered by a Massachusetts employee of a Massachusetts employer while in California in the course of his employment. Even though the employer and employee had agreed to be bound by Massachusetts law, this court held that California was not precluded from applying its own law imposing greater responsibilities on the employer. In doing so, the court reasoned, It has often been recognized by this court that there are some limitations upon the extent to which a state may be required by the full faith and credit clause to enforce even the judgment of another state in contravention of its own statutes or policy. And in the case of statutes, the extra-state effect of which Congress has not prescribed, as it may under the constitutional provision, we think the conclusion is unavoidable that the full faith and credit clause does not require one state to substitute for its own statute, applicable to persons and events within it, the conflicting statute of another state, even though that statute is of controlling force in the courts of the state of its enactment with respect to the same persons and events. 
although Massachusetts has an interest in safeguarding the compensation of Massachusetts employees while temporarily abroad in the course of their employment, and may adopt that policy for itself. That could hardly be thought to support an application of the full faith and credit clause, which would override the constitutional authority of another state to legislate for the bodily safety and economic protection of employees injured within it. Few matters could be deemed more appropriately the concern of the state in which the injury occurs or more completely within its power. The Clapper case was distinguished on the ground that there was nothing in the New Hampshire statute, the decisions of its courts, or in the circumstances of the case, to suggest that reliance on the provisions of the Vermont statute as a defense to the New Hampshire suit was obnoxious to the policy of New Hampshire. In Pacific Insurance, on the other hand, California had its own scheme governing compensation for injuries in the state, and the California courts had found that the policy of that scheme would be frustrated were it denied enforcement. Full faith and credit, this court concluded, does not here enable one state to legislate for the other or to project its laws across state lines so as to preclude the other from prescribing for itself the legal consequences of acts within it. A similar conclusion is appropriate in this case. The interest of California afforded such respect in the Pacific Insurance case was in providing for the bodily safety and economic protection of employees injured within it. In this case, California's interest is the closely related and equally substantial one of providing full protection to those who are injured on its highways through the negligence of both residents and non-residents. To effectuate this interest, California has provided by statute for jurisdiction in its courts over residents and non-residents alike to allow those injured on its highways through the negligence of others to secure full compensation for their injuries in the California courts. In further implementation of that policy, California has unequivocally waived its own immunity from liability for the torts committed by its own agents and authorized full recovery even against the sovereign. As the California courts have found, to require California either to surrender jurisdiction or to limit respondents' recovery to the $25,000 maximum of the Nevada statute would be obnoxious to its statutorily based policies of jurisdiction over non-resident motorists and full recovery. The full faith and credit clause does not require this result. Part 4 Even apart from the full faith and credit clause, Nevada argues that the Constitution implicitly establishes a union in which the states are not free to treat each other as unfriendly sovereigns, 
but must respect the sovereignty of one another. While sovereign nations are free to levy discriminatory taxes on the goods of other nations or to bar their entry altogether, the states of the Union are not. Nor are the states free to deny extradition of a fugitive when a proper demand is made of the executive of another state. And the citizens in each state are entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Each of these provisions places a specific limitation on the sovereignty of the several states. Collectively, they demonstrate that ours is not a union of 50 wholly independent sovereigns, but these provisions do not imply that any one state's immunity from suit in the courts of another state is anything other than a matter of comity. Indeed, in view of the Tenth Amendment's reminder that powers not delegated to the federal government nor prohibited to the states are reserved to the states or to the people, the existence of express limitations on state sovereignty may equally imply that caution should be exercised before concluding that unstated limitations on state power were intended by the framers. In the past, this court has presumed that the states intended to adopt policies of broad comity toward one another, but this presumption reflected an understanding of state policy rather than a constitutional command. As this court stated in Bank of Augusta v. Earl, the intimate union of these states as members of the same great political family, the deep and vital interests which bind them so closely together, should lead us, in the absence of proof to the contrary, to presume a greater degree of comedy and friendship and kindness towards one another than we should be authorized to presume between foreign nations. And when, as without doubt must occasionally happen, the interest or policy of any state requires it to restrict the rule, it has but to declare its will, and the legal presumption is at once at an end. In this case, California has declared its will. It has adopted as its policy full compensation in its courts for injuries on its highways resulting from the negligence of others, whether those others be residents or non-residents, agents of the state or private citizens. Nothing in the federal constitution authorizes or obligates this court to frustrate that policy out of enforced respect for the sovereignty of Nevada. In this nation, each sovereign governs only with the consent of the governed. The people of Nevada have consented to a system in which their state is subject only to limited liability in tort. But the people of California, who have had no voice in Nevada's decision, have adopted a different system. Each of these decisions is equally entitled to our respect. It may be wise policy, as a matter of harmonious interstate relations, for states to accord each other immunity or to respect any established limits on liability. 
they are free to do so. But if a federal court were to hold, by inference from the structure of our Constitution and nothing else, that California is not free in this case to enforce its policy of full compensation, that holding would constitute the real intrusion on the sovereignty of the states and the power of the people in our union. The judgment of the California Court of Appeal is affirmed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.